Thank you for your assistance, Doug. Invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to uh, Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep one of those as our gift to you. Uh, before we turn to that, let's, let's uh, say a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your living word. Thank you that you are present here and that you want to speak into our lives. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, you'd give us eyes to see, that you would take our hearts in your hands and that you would shape them even this morning through your word. Conform us as your people, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Some of you, no doubt, are familiar with the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. How many have seen that? It's a classic. If you haven't seen it, I have plans for your afternoon. Um, the Princess Bride is a story, uh, well, it's a, it's, it's a story in a story, I guess, a grandfather reading a story to his sick grandson. And the story is about a young woman named Buttercup who lives on a farm in the fictional kingdom of Florin. And uh, at the beginning of the story, there's a, there's a farmhand there, Wesley, and every time she tells him to do something, he does it and says, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. They fall in love. And so, so Wesley goes away uh, to, to make his fortune so that he can come back and marry her. But the ship that he is on is attacked by the dread uh, pirate Roberts, and he is presumed dead. Five years later, Buttercup is forcibly betrothed to uh, Prince Humperdinck. Some of you will remember him. But before she's married, uh, she is kidnapped by three criminals. Uh, uh, a small Sicilian man named Vicini, a giant from Greenland named uh, Fezzik, and a Spanish fencing master named Inigo Montoya who was seeking to avenge his father's murder by a man with six fingers on one of his hands. Uh, but they are pursued by a man, a masked man in black, and he catches up to them when they reach the cliffs of insanity. I know some of you who are not familiar with this are thinking, I really do need to watch this. And you do. Uh, being chased by them, along with Prince Humperdinck is looking for his betrothed wife, or bride-to-be. But in time, the man with the mask, the man in black, catches up to these three criminals who have Buttercup. And uh, first... Uh, the man in the mask beats the Spaniard, Inigo Montoya, in a sword match, and he knocks him unconscious. Then he chokes this giant from Greenland unconscious, and then he tricks Vizzini into drinking deadly poison. And so at last, it's just him and uh, Buttercup, and she confronts him with the fact that she believes that he is uh, the dread pirate Roberts, and she's very angry at him, and in the course of that confrontation, she shoves him down into this gorge, and as he tumbles down the gorge, he says... As you wish, as you wish. And then there's more adventure, so if you don't know that, this afternoon you're set. It is a great movie, and that is a great line, and that's the line that I want you to think about this morning, as you wish. This morning we're going to be looking at part of the Christmas story uh, recounted in Luke's gospel about the mother of Jesus, about uh, a young girl named Mary. And it illustrates uh, what it looks like. This story illustrates so powerfully what it looks like for us to surrender our lives to Jesus. And though Mary doesn't use those same words, as you wish, that is precisely the sense of what she does express to the Lord. As you wish, Lord, as you wish. 
Now, let me help get us situated in Luke's gospel uh, before I turn to and we read the, the verses that we're going to be looking at. Uh, this is really the second story in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel opens up with a story about uh, an old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest, uh, but Zechariah and Elizabeth ha- have been unable to have children. Uh, that has been a deep sorrow in their lives, but now they are old and that, that ship has sailed. They have given up hope. It's not going to happen. Zechariah is a priest, and he is serving at the temple. Now, priests would serve at the temple for one week, two times a year. And so it's his week. He is on duty at the temple, and he's drawn by lot. This wouldn't even happen to every priest once in a lifetime, but he is drawn by lot to go into the holy place and to burn incense. Youth, if you've been with us, we've been walking through uh, the biblical story and exploring the tabernacle and the temple. So this is not the most holy place where only the high priest would go once a year. This is the, the holy place. There's the, the table of the bread of the presence on your right, and on the left was the candle stand, and then there was the, the altar of incense. And Zechariah was in there alone. He would go in there by himself as a priest to burn incense. He was chosen this one particular day, and he's in there. He's in there alone. This was the, he was the only one who would go in there to do this And suddenly he realized that he wasn't alone. And to the right of the altar was the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel said that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a child. And Zechariah didn't believe it. He he expresses an unbelief with a question, how how can I be sure of this? He thinks there's no way at this point in life it's going to happen. And because of his failure to believe, he's actually struck dumb. There's this divine discipline, if you will. He can't speak, and he won't be able to speak until his son will be born. And that son, of course, will be John, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Our passage picks things up immediately following that story in verse 26. You can follow along as I read. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I want to walk through the text and ask four questions uh, of, of the text with you this morning. First, question, what do we know about Mary? Second question, what does God ask of Mary? Third question, uh, what is the response of Mary? And fourth, what do we learn from this story about Mary? So what do we know about Mary? What does God ask of Mary? What is the response of Mary? And what do we learn from this story about Mary? So question number one, what do we know about Mary? 
Mary is the central human character in this part of the story, in this, in this part of Luke's gospel. What, what does the text tell us? What, what can we glean from this passage and from other passages? Well, we know several things. We know that Mary is from the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small village in the hill country of Galilee. It was an unimportant place. When Jesus uh, was collecting disciples at the beginning of John's gospel, Philip has encountered Jesus, and Philip goes to Nathanael and says, hey, Nathanael, we found the one that Moses spoke about in the law in Nazareth. We found him. And Nathanael's response is what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Like, Nazareth is this unimportant place place. It's a, it's a hick town. One traffic light, maybe. Like you blink and you miss it. It's just unimportant. Uh, just three miles from Nazareth, there was a great city. It's interesting, the, the city of Sepphoris is really close to Nazareth, never mentioned in Scripture. In fact, during this period, uh, King Herod was doing all kinds of building projects. It's highly likely, I would suggest, that Joseph and even Jesus at some point in his life worked on some of those construction projects. There's this great, important city, not even mentioned in Scripture, and here's Nazareth, this unimportant, nothing town. That was her home. That's where she's from. We also know that Mary is a relative of Elizabeth, who we encounter in the story immediately before this. Uh, Elizabeth's her cousin. Elizabeth married to Zechariah the priest. Now, unlike what we're told about Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were told that they were righteous in God's sight, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, we know that Mary finds favor with God, but we don't get that kind of report about Mary we know this, though. She, she was young, likely a teenager, maybe 16 years old. Uh, she was among the, the least powerful in her whole world. In a world that valued and respected age, she was young. In a patriarchal society, she was female. In a world that was stratified economically, she was poor. She had neither husband nor child to validate her existence in, in, which, uh, in a world where marriage and motherhood were understood as primary, uh, of primary importance in the lives of women. She, she had neither husband nor child. She was a teenage girl from a nobody town, a, a nothing town. She was a, a nobody from a nothing town. Uh, what's really interesting to note is this. When Gabriel, this angel from God, greets her, he, he says to her, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And what's her response? The text tells us Mary was greatly troubled. Literally, in the original, she was perplexed. She was confused. She's going, what? Me? Highly favored? I mean, what we see is that Mary is this humble, unpretentious, unassuming young woman. She has no visions of grandeur or greatness. And yet the angel comes and says, you are highly favored. Simple girl from a simple town. We also know that Mary was a virgin. Twice in verse 27, Luke uses that word, parthenos, the word that means young woman beyond puberty, not yet married, not yet sexually active. In verse 34, when, when she asks Gabriel, how will this be? Gabriel says, you will be with child. She says, how will this be? She adds, and it says literally, since I don't know a man. That's a euphemism in Scripture to speak of of sexual activity. She says, I, I don't know, man. I, I'm still a virgin. How, how can I conceive a child? See, Mary understands the fun fundamentals of human reproduction, and she's puzzled by this message. How can this happen? 
She's puzzled. She's confused. Now, before we move on to the second question, I, I want to address just briefly some other things that, that sometimes in our world have been contended about Mary, and I want to dispel them. Uh, some theology about, about Mary, most prevalent in Catholic circles, but certainly uh, present in some other traditions as well, are some things that I want to contend are not biblical, and we can, we can just, I want to I want to speak to them so that we know we can, we can discard those, put those on the side. Those are not things about Mary. One is the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And, and that is this contention that Mary was not only a virgin when she conceived and had Jesus, but that she remained a virgin throughout her life. It is so important for us to know that there is not a shred of biblical evidence to suggest that. And, and, and to the contrary, the Gospels actually tell us about Jesus' brothers and sisters. We here mention of them. Furthermore, any notion that would contend that somehow it's more godly, it's more spiritual to not engage sexually, would, would run counter to the message of Scripture. Uh, sexuality is something created by God. Uh, it is good and to be received as a good gift when experienced in and expressed in the context for which it was made. That is in a union, a lifelong union of one man and one woman. And so there's, there's nothing biblical about that contention if that's something that you've heard. I want to dispel that. The Bible is unequivocal in affirming the goodness of sexuality in the appropriate context. A second teaching is that of the immaculate conception. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means this, that, that though Mary, when she was born or conceived, was conceived in the normal way, that she, she did not receive original sin, that she was somehow born sinlessly perfect in a way different than all, all the rest of us who are born with the stain of sin. And again, there's, there's nothing in Scripture that would illustrate that, that she somehow uh, was born that way. A number of years ago, I had friends who lived in the west end of Edmonton. They were driving <clears throat> with their young daughter. She was I don't know, three, four, maybe five. She was learning to read, and she'd read signs, and she'd just read out loud while they're driving, and they're driving along, and, and suddenly they were quite shocked by what they heard come out of the back seat. Uh, their daughter suddenly said, Holy Mother of God, and, and they, it jarred them, and then they realized they were driving past the church with that name. So Mary is the Holy Mother of God, but she's not holy in a way that is different than any other person who has put their faith in Jesus. We all, through faith in Christ, as those who come to Christ, are made holy. And so Mary finds favor with God. She, she sets a, an example as a godly woman, an example that we should emulate. Nonetheless, it's important that we understand that she was like us in need of a Redeemer. And, and so this idea of an immaculate conception that somehow she avoided original sin and and, and was sinlessly perfect is, again, something that the Bible does not teach us at all. So there's a number of things we can know about Mary, and those things, if you've heard them or they're in, rattling around or you encounter them, I want you to know that we can confidently reject them. Let's turn to the second question, our second question. What does God ask of Mary? The angel Gabriel makes his second appearance here. He appeared uh, in, in the holy place to Zechariah, the priest, here he makes a second appearance in the gospel. He shows up in the town of Nazareth. God sent Gabriel to Nazareth to Mary. And here's his message to her. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And we need to stop for a moment and think about this with me. Mary is this simple, unpretentious girl from this small backwater town of Nazareth, teenager, 16 probably. She's pledged to be married, but not yet married. And God speaks to her through an angel and says, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. Not in the normal way, not after you marry Joseph, not through sexual activity. Now, in your current state as a virgin, God asks her to do something that, quite honestly, put her life at some risk. I mean, adultery was punishable by death, and that is the conclusion, you understand, that everyone would have come to. See, we've heard this story of the virgin birth so many times that we don't even really stop to think about it. I mean, Joseph came to that conclusion. He was going to divorce her. He, he didn't want to bring shame. He didn't want her killed, but he thought, like, this, this marriage is over. He was going to divorce her quietly. The conclusion of everyone in small town Nazareth and beyond would be that, that Mary had been fooling around. That would be the normal conclusion. And yet God said, Mary, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. God was inviting her to risk her life, to risk her reputation, to give up her hopes and her dreams, her expectations, her plans for how her life was going to unfold. Imagine all that that would mean for her. God calls her to surrender her body, to be a vessel through whom Jesus would come. We need to be careful when we hear what Gabriel said to her, to hear when we hear this, because as those who live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, uh, as those who have the Scriptures, Old and New Testament together, we, we can read the story, we understand uh, what God was doing. We, it, it's easy for us to hear what Gabriel said as this clear uh, declaration of the divinity of the baby that would be born to Mary. We hear th- this, is, this is the incarnation, this is God putting on flesh. But to first century Jewish ears, That's not how they would have heard this. That's not how Mary would have heard this. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, the biblical writer recounts the words of the Lord spoken to Nathan the prophet, who is to speak these to David. And here's what that, that message from God was. I will be his father, and he will be my son. The Lord is, that's a message from God to King David. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If you read on a little longer, the, the text continues, it's, it speaks about when he does wrong. It's speaking about Solomon, David's son. And those words are applied to him. I will be his father and he will be my son. In other words, what we need to understand is that in Israel's history, and in fact not only in Israel but in other nations, the king was often spoken of as a son of God. And so, though Gabriel says that to Mary, Mary didn't go, ah, the incarnation. I mean, she had no categories for that. So, though we're here tempted to hear this as a declaration of Jesus' deity, God in the flesh, that's not what first century Jewish ears would have heard. It's not what Mary would have heard. 
Mary would have heard king. They would think God is sending the long-promised king, the long-ago-promised Messiah to deliver them, to deliver their nation. This was the, the king, the descendant of David that they've been waiting for. This is about the restoration of the nation that they have been longing for and waiting for. It's clear, even as we read on the Gospels, that Mary didn't, didn't grasp this. There's a story in Mark's Gospel where Jesus is in a house and it's with his disciples, and as so many people come and crowd around them, they're not even able to eat, Mark tells us. And then Jesus' family comes to try and take charge of him because they think he's out of his mind. Mary didn't grasp the, the incarnation at this point. It's not what she heard. So back to our second question, what does God ask of Mary? God asks Mary to let go, to let go of her plans, her agenda, her hopes, her dreams, her reputation, her body, to serve Him, to serve His purposes. Question three, what is the response of Mary? There are two parts to Mary's response. The first, she asks a question. Gabriel gives this message and she says, how will this be? since I'm a virgin. Now, if you're remembering the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, Zechariah had a question, and uh, his, his question exposed his unbelief, and he was struck dumb, mute, for the period until his son was born. Uh, no such response happens to Mary's question, so what's the difference? Well, Zechariah's question is, is it's expressing his unbelief. It's saying, you know, show me, like, prove, prove it to me. How, how can I be sure of it? That's his question when Gabriel says, your wife will have a son. Mary doesn't ask that question. Her question is different. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Though we might miss it at a glance, it's, it's different. Mary's question is just exposing her confusion. She's befuddled. She's perplexed. She, she doesn't understand this. How is this possible? I have not known a man. How can I conceive a child? How can I be pregnant? In the history of the world, this was unheard of. It was unprecedented. And so she says, how? And in response to her question, Gabriel informs her that this will come by the power of God, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of God, the Most High, will overshadow her, and that she will conceive miraculously, that this will be an act of God, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God is how John puts it in his gospel. That's the first part of our answer about Mary's question or response. She asks the question, how, how will this be? How is, how is this possible? And the second part, and this is the key for us this morning, the second part of her response is a response of surrender. Mary let go. She let go of a lot. She let go of fears and anxieties about what Joseph might say, how he might respond. She let go of her reputation she couldn't control this. I mean, think small town, pregnant 16-year-old. It was God, uh-huh. She, she let go of her control of her body. She let go of her hopes, her dreams, her, her, her plans, her dream. She let go of the path her life would take. She let go. She surrendered herself to God. And she speaks these amazing words, I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. She says, Father, do what you want to do. Do what you want to do in me. Do what you want to do through me. I am the Lord's servant. It really is an amazing response 
this young teenage girl gives to God. It's inspiring. It's challenging. This young girl from this unimportant town, this town of no consequence, provides us, provides us as Christians through the centuries with this powerful example of what it looks like to surrender our lives to God. I am the Lord's servant. Do your thing, God. Use me. Do what you want. That leads us to the fourth question. What do we learn from this story about Mary? And it would be easy to simply assert that we should aspire to be like Mary, that we should follow the example of Mary. We should surrender to God fully like like we see Mary doing here. And all of that's true. Mary does provide us with an amazing example. Uh, Mary does provide us with an example that we should aspire to, one that we, we can choose to follow, to surrender our lives to God, to say to God, I am your servant. That is amazing. That is what God calls us to. Jesus calls us. He says, whoever wants to be my, my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus calls all who will be his disciples to surrender. He calls us all to do what Mary did, to say, I am your servant, to give up everything. See, Jesus didn't come just to be a part of your life. Jesus isn't some, someone who comes and is, is added to your life. No, Jesus takes over. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he comes, and he, he doesn't say, invite me into your heart. He says, bow before me. Surrender to me. And so, yes, we are to follow the example of Mary, but, but here's the reality. We need more than an example because every one of us, every one of us will fail. Every one of us has failed and we will fail again to live a surrendered life to God. We need more than an example. We need a redeemer. We need a rescuer and we need power in order to do this. And that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus provides See, this text ultimately does not call us to gaze upon Mary. It calls us to gaze upon the one to whom Mary would give birth, Jesus. See, in, in Mary, we see this marvelous instance where she surrendered to God with these marvelous words, I am the Lord's servant. But Jesus comes. Jesus comes through her surrender. Jesus enters the world. The Son of God, God in His love for humanity, for us, those who have, have rebelled against Him, those have, who have rejected Him, those who have lived as lords of our own lives, Jesus came to rescue us. God in His holiness and God in His justice needs to punish sin. And Jesus comes into the world to bear that penalty for us. And not only that, Jesus bears that penalty for us, but He also empowers us. And then we look to Jesus. Jesus humbled Himself. He left His Father's side in heaven. He put on flesh. He came and dwelt among us, born of a poor young woman, a teenage girl. He lived a life of obedience to the Father. And when He was around 33, He willingly laid down His life for us. He was arrested. He was tried. He was whipped. He was mocked. He was nailed to a cross. He suffered horrifically. And while on the cross, his father, with whom he had known only 
perfect intimacy for all eternity. His father turned his back and poured out his wrath, his just punishment on him. So that you and I, through faith in him, in Jesus, might be forgiven. That we might be washed. That we might be cleansed. And not only that, Jesus doesn't just wipe the slate clean, but he credits us with his perfect righteousness. It's imputed to us. So the Father looks at you, and you are not only clean and pure, but you are righteous and holy because of what Christ did. And on the night Christ was betrayed, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed these words, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus surrendered. Jesus surrendered out of love for you and me. Jesus surrendered so that we might, through faith, receive life, be cleansed, be purified, out of love for us. He surrendered so that what we broke, he might fix. So that what, what we destroyed, he might restore. So what, that what our rebellion ruined, he might, where, where our rebellion ruined our relationship with God, he might bring reconciliation. He redeemed us from the power and penalty of sin. For us, he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. This son was born to Mary. This is the son whose birth we celebrate at this time of year. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to redeem us from our sin, from our failure to surrender. And he came to dwell in us, to empower us, so that we might, like Mary, grow to that place where we do surrender. Where we can say, I'm the Lord's servant. That's what we see in this text. That's what we see in this story. The truth is that God calls every one of us, every one of us to complete surrender, to let go of our reputations, to let go of our plans, our agendas, our hopes, our dreams, to let go of, of everything, our, our bodies, our lives, and say, Jesus, I am yours. I, I give myself to you. I give myself for the sake of the gospel. I am the Lord's servant. And see, we, we don't do that by our own strength. See, Jesus came not only to forgive us, to cleanse us, to, to make us new, but Jesus came to live in us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus fills us with his Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of God who enables us to grow into men and women, young and old, boys and girls, teenagers, who would surrender, who would, like Mary, say, I am the Lord's servant. Remember our friend Wesley from The Princess Bride? Remember that great line, the buttercup, as you wish. Christmas is a celebration of the birth of a king, a king who comes before us. And like I said, doesn't say, hey, I want to be a part of your life. He says, I'm king. I want you to surrender the whole of your life to me. He is king of kings and lord of lords before whom we're called to bow to whom we're called to surrender. And Wesley's line from The Princess Bride is a great line in response. A great line as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
When Jesus says something, our response would simply be, as you wish. Jesus, whatever you want, whatever you call me to, whatever you ask, I am the Lord's servant, as you wish. Amen.